If you would take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew once again, Matthew chapter 26. And Gabe, Pastor Gabe asked me to just announce if you're at home today watching and you'd like a copy of that devotional, uh, you can stop by the church during office hours this week and pick one of those up. So take advantage of that opportunity. Matthew 26, and we'll be looking at verses 36 through 46 together today. Please follow along as I read. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There are some great military battles on the pages of sacred scripture. The battle between David and Goliath, of course, where a young shepherd boy defeats a giant who is over nine feet tall with only a sling and a stone. Gideon and his 300 men and their victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites who were as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number. But they blew the trumpets and not one of Gideon's men were lost. The Battle of Jericho, where Joshua and his men marched around the city of Jericho seven times and the people shouted and the priests blew their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. But the greatest battle in all of scripture was fought and won in a garden. Without swords, without spears, without slings and stones, by a man who got down on his knees and prostrated himself before the Lord and prayed, submitting his life to the will of the Father. And that man was the Lord Jesus Christ, who we just read about here in Matthew 26. In the verses that precede our text for today, we see a focus from Matthew on the divinity of Jesus as Jesus made five predictions related to his arrest and his death and his resurrection from the dead. They were more than just predictions. They were prophecies, all of which came true just as he said. And Jesus was able to do this because he had perfect knowledge. He was omniscient and he was God. 
today we are looking at the humanity of Christ and we will watch him struggle in the garden as he battles with what is about to take place. So today I want to show you three displays of the humanity of Jesus as we'll look at the incredible sorrow of Christ, the intense supplication of Christ, and finally the immaculate strength of Christ. The first display of the humanity of Christ is the incredible sorrow of Christ. Let me read again verses 36 to 38. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Well, this historical event that takes place during the last week of Jesus on the earth, we can also read about this in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. It is found in Luke chapter 20, verses 40 to 46. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as most of you know, know, are known as the synoptic gospels. They are very similar to one another, yet they are independently written and they are unique. In the gospel of Matthew, we see this emphasis, this focus on Christ as king or as Messiah. In Mark, we see Jesus presented as the servant who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And in Luke, we see Christ presented as the Son of Man. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and after they sung a hymn together, they they went out to the Mount of Olives. We know that Judas is now gone. He has gone to the chief priests and elders with the information on Jesus' whereabouts. And so Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples come to a garden. We see this here in verse 36. It is a place called Gethsemane, literally meaning oil press. And that presumably means that there were olive trees growing there, and there are. Um, Ethan Chow and I and some others were there just a year ago. We can verify that for you if you want to talk to us later. They are now on the Mount of Olives. And in John 18, verse 1, this is located just across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. It was a familiar place, a meeting place for Jesus and the 12. And in John chapter 18, verse 2, where we see the details of Christ's arrest, we read that Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Well, Jesus had not come here with his disciples to engage in some light conversation. He was not there to talk about the departure of Judas, nor was he there with his chosen ones to appoint a new treasurer now that Judas was gone. Jesus is not with them as he had been before to teach them some deep and rich theological truths. This is Christ's last night of freedom before his death. He is facing rejection by the Father and is about to endure an agonizing death. And so in verse 36, he instructs his disciples to sit where they were as, while he goes away from them to pray. In verse 37, we see that Jesus does not separate himself from all of the disciples, but from eight of them. But he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Matthew here refers to the latter two as the sons of Zebedee, and we know this to be 
James and John. And this is the third time that we see in Scripture that Jesus takes these three men with him to a special event on a special occasion. We see it in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus takes those three men up and they meet Moses and Elijah. We see it in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and only those three men are permitted to go into the room with him. And now in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus with these three, these closest companions with him during these final hours. This too is an indication of his humanity. Jesus doesn't want to be alone. He, he wants his closest friends to be near him as he contemplates and agonizes over what he is about to face. In verse 37, we read that he began to be grieved and distressed. The New King James translates this sorrowful and deeply distressed. The first word here translated sorrowful comes from the Greek verb lupeo, meaning to be grieved, to be pained, to be distressed, to be sorrowful. The second word that is translated in most of our Bibles, distressed, comes from the Greek word adamoneo, meaning to be depressed or dejected, full of anguish and sorrow. Two similar verbs here, closely related, and Matthew uses them both to show his readers what Christ was really experiencing in the garden. Friends, the Son of God was grieved. The Messiah was distressed. The Savior of the world was full of anguish and sorrow. And that is exactly what he tells his three friends in verse 38. Look at that with me. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. I do enjoy watching The Passion of the Christ that was directed by Mel Gibson. I own it on DVD. Some of you younger people will have to ask your parents what a DVD is. But I try to watch that every Good Friday to remember that intense physical suffering that Jesus endured for my sins. But the agony and the grief that Jesus was experiencing late Thursday night of The Passion Week and into Friday morning I don't believe came from his dread of physical pain or from the prospect that he was about to be deserted by his closest friends or that the leader of the 12, Peter, would soon deny him three times. Beloved, Jesus was about to become the sin of the world. He was about to be rejected and forsaken by his father. He was about to face the awful, terrible wrath of a holy and righteous God. And it was this that caused him deep anguish and sorrow. And so in that sorrow, he calls out to the three, his, his closest companions, those closest disciples. And he says, remain here and keep watch with me. Jesus here appeals to them to, to share with him in this difficult hour. Mark just records Jesus saying, remain here and keep watch, but Matthew adds the words, remain here and keep watch with me. It's really interesting here. Jesus doesn't even ask them to pray. He simply wants them to stay awake as he goes to pray. Because Jesus was going to go and pray a prayer that only he could pray. 
And so we see in verse 39 that he went a little beyond them. Jesus knew that he could be encouraged by the support of his closest followers, being close in proximity to him. And here we see the humanity of Christ, the sorrow over what lied ahead, and the desire for companionship in his darkest hour. Friends, Jesus experienced great sorrow. And some of you are experiencing some great sorrow and anguish even today. And I would just ask, what are you doing with that sorrow? What are you going to do with that grief? And what did Jesus do? Well, we see the second manifestation of his humanity. We see the intense supplication of Christ. And that is found for us here in verse 39. Look at that with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So he, here we see that Jesus went a little beyond where Peter, James, and John were seated, and he began to pray. Luke tells us in his gospel that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. Matthew tells us even more about his posture here as we read that he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. This indicates prostration, the adoption of the lowliest position of all. And I just wanted to note here that we read often in the Gospels of Jesus going off by himself to pray, but this is the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus doing this falling on his face, prostrating himself before the Father, yet another indication of the great grief and the overwhelming anguish that he was feeling. Also, it's important to note that this is the only time in all of the Gospels found only here in Matthew that Jesus addresses God in prayer as my Father. He does so numerous times while teaching, but never in recorded prayer to the Father. Even though Jesus knew he would soon be forsaken by his father, during this time of great sorrow and great anguish, he knew God the Father, his father, would be near. And look at the next four words that follow here in verse 39. If it is possible. If it is possible. This little phrase precedes the substance of the prayer and makes it clear here that Jesus was not pressing for anything that was against the will of the Father. Friends, it is so important to understand here that Jesus was not wrestling with God's will, nor was he resisting God's will. As the perfect Lamb of God, the one who knew no sin, he was beginning to feel the awful burden of sin that would soon be placed upon his back that he would bear in his body and take to a horrible and cruel cross and his holy, perfect soul was repelled by it. Leon Morris, a great commentator on the Gospel of Matthew says, the question at issue was not whether Jesus should do the Father's will, but whether that necessarily included the way of the cross. The kind of death he faced was the kind of ordeal from which human desire naturally shrinks. Thus, we discern here the natural human desire to avoid it. 
but we discern also Jesus' firm determination that the Father's will be done. So he prays for the avoidance of the death he faced, but only if that accorded with the divine plan. He prays here. He offers a petition. Let this cup pass from me. But in the same sentence, he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. The translation is this. Father, if there is any other way you can redeem fallen humanity besides a cross, besides me becoming the sin of the world, besides me being forsaken by you, and besides me facing the, fair, the fierce and terrible wrath of a holy God, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if there's any other way, Jesus is saying, I will take it. If there is a plan B, I'm interested. The death he was facing was a horrible death, a unique death. You say, well, others had died by crucifixion. Yes, absolutely. But no other person in human history had died facing the unrestrained wrath of a holy God. And so Jesus prayed, if it were possible, that it might be avoided. Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. Cup. In the Old Testament, this is a symbol of divine wrath against sin, and that's exactly the meaning here. Jesus was about to face the wrath of God for taking on our sins and bearing them in his body. But we look at this final petition where he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus here rests in the will of God. Leon Morris again says, Jesus is not seeking to impose his will on the Father, but to accept the will of the Father. Jesus prayed three different times, your will be done. Sometimes the question comes up, people have asked me this question in my ministry, should I pray your will be done? Is my faith weak if I pray, God, your will be done? Is this to be a practice for us today, for all of us who believe in Christ? Well, not according to Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn says, never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, if it be thy will. Don't allow such faith-destroying words to be spoken from your mouth. When you pray, if it be your will, Lord, faith will be destroyed. Doubt will billow up and flood your being. Be on guard against words like this, which will rob you of your faith and drag you down in despair. But when Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, he said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Good to hear that echo. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle in James 4, 13 to 15, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Friends, there is nothing weak about praying, if it be your will. 
That is how Jesus prayed. And that is how Jesus commanded his disciples to pray. And that is how you and I are to pray. When we pray, thy will be done, we are saying, Lord, I acknowledge your sovereignty in the world and I submit myself to it. When we pray, your will be done, we are also asking that God would give us a desire to do his will. Well, back to the prayer of Jesus. There was nothing weak about him praying, your will be done. Listen to what Luke tells us about his prayer. You know this in Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. As we come to verse 40, Jesus gets up from the ground. He gets off of his face. He had heard his disciples snoring and he comes to them and said to his disciples or he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Luke tells us here that Jesus found them sleeping from sorrow. The same word that we see translated sorrow in verse 37, it's in the noun form here, lupe. They were distressed too. They had heard some really hard sayings from Jesus on this day. Jesus had told them that one of his own would betray him on this very night. And he said that it would have been good if this man had never been born. He institutes the Lord's Supper with them, but then he tells them that he will not drink this cup with them again until the establishment of his kingdom. He tells them that they will all fall away from him this night. He prophesies that they will all scatter. And then he again predicts his death and his resurrection. And he tells Peter that before a rooster crows, he will deny him three times. And now the disciples see Jesus as they had never seen him before. The grief was obvious. The anguish was unmistakable. The distress was unveiled for all of them to see. The disciples were sleeping, but not because they were lazy, not because they were being insensitive to their Savior, but because they too were overcome with sorrow. The great emotional strain was weighing heavily on the disciples as well. We can assume and infer here that all three of the disciples were sleeping. This seems to be clear from the grammar. Matthew tells us that he found them sleeping. Yet Jesus only addresses Peter. He said to Peter in verse 40, uh, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. I wonder why does he address only Peter? Poor guy. I mean, James and John were asleep too. Kind of surprised Peter didn't point that out. <laughs> but, but perhaps it's because of what Peter had just said to him earlier. Look back in verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Peter said, I will die with you, Lord. I will never fall away from you. I will never deny you. But I may fall asleep on you when you need me the most. 
Jesus here addressed Peter, but he spoke to all three men. The verb is plural here in the Greek. That's why the word men is there in your, in your Bible. When he says to them, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. And he tells them in verse 41, keep watching and praying. Two commands here, present imperatives, pointing to continual action. Be praying, be watching. Why? Verse 41, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus understood this very well. Isaiah says in his prophecy of the Messiah to come, written 700 years before the coming of Jesus, Isaiah describes him in Isaiah 53.3 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. As we see in the verses that precede our text for today, the faith of the disciples was insufficient. The disciples were failing and the flesh was prevailing. One more time from Leon Morris, he says, just at the time when Jesus was showing the victory of spirit over flesh, the disciples were manifesting the victory of flesh over spirit. And so Jesus, knowing well the weakness of the flesh, returns to supplication. The second time he goes before the Father, verse 42, he went again a second time and prayed. He continues in prayer. Previously in verse 39, there were two petitions. Let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. But now Jesus offers only one petition in verse 42. He says, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. I want you to see what is not seen here in the text. Did you get that? I want you to see something that is not here. There is no reference here to the will of Christ. No mention of my will. Here is Christ's recognition that the drinking of the cup is indeed the will of the Father. And Jesus says, in essence, if there is no other way, if this is the only way to satisfy your divine wrath, if this is the only way to save sinners from eternal condemnation, your will be done. I love what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5, 8. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Christ recognized through his overwhelming sorrow and in this sincere and persistent supplication that this was indeed the will of the Father. He sorrowed exceedingly. He suffered greatly. But in this suffering... Jesus came to a full comprehension and submission to the Father that this was the only way that God could redeem sinful humanity. Verse 43, he finds them sleeping again for their eyes were heavy. Have you ever fallen asleep praying? That's what happens when you try to pray from bed when the cover's pulled over you. It's not the best way to pray. 
The disciples fell asleep praying here, and Matthew records no conversation here between Jesus and them. We read in Mark's gospel in Mark 14.40 that again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. We are not sure what Jesus said to them at this point. We really don't know if he spoke to them at all. Did Jesus just simply look at them in sadness and in despair, causing them to remain silent? But Matthew does tell us what Jesus did next. Verse 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Jesus prayed a third time, saying the same thing, and of the three synoptic gospels, only Matthew tells us that Jesus prayed a third time. He prayed what he had just prayed before. My father, if this is the only way, your will be done. Again, submitting his life to the will of the father. Friends, get this this morning. The disciples were sorrowful, and so they slept. Jesus was sorrowful, so he prayed. And those of us who are here this morning who have trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We are little Christs. We are striving to be more like Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to the image of his Son. But too often, and me included, when we face trials and difficulties, when we are overcome with anguish and grief, When we are experiencing sorrow and loss, we look more like the disciples than we look like Christ. So here in examining the humanity of the second person of the Trinity, we first see the sorrow of Christ. Secondly, we see the supplication of Christ. The third manifestation of his humanity, we see the immaculate strength of Christ. The immaculate strength of Christ. Look at verses 45 and 46. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus prayed that there might be another way apart from the cross, but the Father remained silent. And so Jesus willingly received the assignment from the Father. Jesus knew this day would come. He had come to earth for this very moment to lay down his life as a sacrifice that we might live forever. Remember what Matthew told us about Jesus in chapter 16, verse 21. We read that from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the chief priests from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Remember the words of Jesus in the gospel of John in John 15, 13, where he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Or John 10, 17 to 18, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Jesus came to earth. We just celebrated his birth at Christmas a few months ago. We understand that Jesus was born to die, that we might live. 
And here we see Jesus manifesting great strength as the multitude comes to arrest him. I don't believe this is supernatural strength or miraculous strength, but human strength. However, it was a human strength like no other human had ever possessed because it was a human strength that was not stained by sin. It was perfect, immaculate strength. Look at verse 45. He says, behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus did not say run for your lives or retreat to the upper room or off with their heads. Peter was on his own on that one. Instead, he says in verse 46, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This was not a call to run away. It was a call to obedience to the Father. Jesus had fought the battle and he spent the time of waiting for the moment ordained before the foundation of the world to take place by spending it in supplication and in fervent prayer. And now the predetermined plans of a holy and sovereign God would take their course. Peter did not understand this at the time. John tells us that it was Peter who drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. I think it's really interesting when I read the Gospels that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke did not identify the disciple who did this, but John does. And it will also be John who will later tell us that after Jesus raised from the dead and the tomb was empty, that John outran Peter to the tomb. He even had time to to go inside and and look at the linen strips. And then he says, and then Peter arrived. (laughs) I love John. (laughs) Peter did not understand what was happening in real time. But later at Pentecost, when he preaches that great sermon, he fully comprehended. He would say in Acts 2, 22 to 23, Jesus the Nazarene, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus did not fight. The only fight he fought had already taken place on his knees and on his face. He recognized that this was the only way and he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He won the battle over temptation and now he would go to the cross. I want to look a little closer at his strength. So drop down to verses 50 to 53. In verse 49, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus had at his disposal 12 legions of angels. We know a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. Jesus tells his friends here, all I have to do is ask. And I will have 72,000 angels at my side in an instant. In 1958, a man named Ray Overholt 
wrote a song called 10,000 Angels. Mel and Morag might remember that. They were alive in 1958. <clears throat> they were really young, though. But I remember hearing that chorus, probably on an eight track as I grew up, that said these words. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. I have wondered why Ray Overholt did not call his song 72,000 angels. But when you try to sing that, it just doesn't flow as well as 10,000 angels. And we know that Christ could have done it with only 10,000 anyway, amen? But this was not God's plan. Look at what Jesus says in verse 54. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus showed great strength. He even showed compassion by healing Malchus and restoring his ear. Jesus showed great strength when he allowed himself to be taken so that he could fulfill the predetermined plan of a holy God. The strength, the immaculate strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, it appears as weakness to the world. Jesus indeed could have called 72,000 angels. He, he could have eluded the mocking and the beating and the scourging. He could have escaped the terrible wrath of the Father and he would have saved his own life but our lives would have been lost. And so we praise God today for the obedience of Jesus. Jesus Christ experienced great grief and exceeding sorrow so much that when Isaiah prophesied about him, he called him man of sorrows. But Jesus took that sorrow and that sorrow turned into supplication. Jesus prayed to the Father over and over, repeating the same thing. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And that supplication led to strength. There was no other way for God to redeem fallen sinners. The only way was for Jesus to suffer and die on a cruel cross. And when this was accepted by the Son of God, we see that Christ was strengthened and he went to the cross willingly, laying down his life for you and for me. Sorrow to supplication to strength. What an example for us to follow as we strive to be more like Christ. May our sorrows, our grief, our great anguish, which is real, may that lead us to supplication. And may that supplication, that that time we spend in prayer to the Father lead to great strength, the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to do hard things and to persevere in severe trials and tribulations. There once was a preacher who lived many years ago who faced numerous trials during his ministry. He loved and served the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart. But once while ministering in Asia, he said, we do not want you to be unaware of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Listen to this. So that we despaired even of life. And he wrote about how he was tormented by a messenger of Satan himself. And like Jesus before him, 
he pleaded with the Lord three times that he would take it away from him. But like the father did with the son, he did not grant him his request. But the Lord did speak to this preacher of God's word. And he said to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And this would cause Paul to say in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beloved, this is where the battle was won. And after this major victory, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He carried his own cross to Golgotha. He voluntarily laid down his life for our sins, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter this Passion Week, as we think of all the things that took place during this final week of your life on the earth, we are so grateful for everything that we read. Lord, as we even read of the triumphal entry in in the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, one-fourth of this great gospel is dedicated to the final week of your life. It's amazing. We thank you that this was all coming to, to a head, Lord. This is why you came to earth. You were born to die that we might live. And today, Lord, we are so grateful for the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God took him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for that great exchange, Lord our sin for your righteousness, the greatest trade in history. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has never put their faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would know that they are not guaranteed tomorrow, that they would know that there is a savior, that they have a a great problem. Their sin has separated them from God so that he cannot hear them. And Lord, their only hope in this life and in the life to come is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, if that would be true of anyone today, either here or listening, that, Lord, you would be kind, that you would be compassionate and grant them repentance from their sin, that they might trust in you and give them faith to believe in your son, that they might be justified and have peace with a holy God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for loving us when we were your enemies. We thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.